Hi, Peter Bregman here. Before we get into this episode, I want to let you know that registration for a very special program, the Bregman Leadership Intensive, is now open. It's unlike any leadership program you've been to before. We don't talk about leadership in the intensive. We actually engage in experiences that bring out the best of who you can be as a leader. We uncover blind spots that you may have, and in it, you will learn how to get around those blind spots in order to remove the obstacles that prevent you from contributing your maximum potential. To apply and see if you're the right fit, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership. And you can learn more about the intensive there. We only have 20 spots open and we're filling up. So don't hesitate to apply now. That's bregmanpartners.com forward slash leadership to apply for the intensive today. That's it for now. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Jeff Dyer. He is the author most recently of the book, Innovation Capital, How to Compete and Win Like the World's Most Innovative Leaders. Uh, before this, he's written two other books uh, on innovation, um, one called "Innovation: The Innovator's DNA and the other, The Innovator's Method. He has two co-authors for both of those books. Uh, he originally was... Uh, consulted with Bain & Company, and then went into academia. And we're lucky enough to have him with us on the show. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be with you today. I should also say that you're a professor at uh, of strategy at Brigham Young University. So you've really, and when I say entered into academia, you've really entered into academia. So yeah. I'm kind of curious why innovation? This is your third book on innovators or innovation. What, what captures you about innovation? Well, uh, really, my interest was sparked uh, almost 18, 17, 18 years ago. Had a conversation with Clayton Christensen, well known at Harvard for disruptive innovation, and a colleague who was then at BYU with me, Hal Gregerson. And we were talking with Clay. He'd become sort of famous for disruptive innovation. And um, I had this question, which was Clay, do you know anything about where disruptive business ideas come from? Do we know anything? really about the innovators themselves or how they come up with these ideas, whether they're different from the rest of us. He said, you know, no, I don't know much about that. And that, that was something that was really interesting to me, in part because I didn't think I was particularly creative or innovative. You know, I thought I was a kind of creatively challenged, wanted to see how these folks might be different, thought it would be really interesting to study a large sample of them and to interview them and talk to them. And so that really began my journey into understanding first where do creative ideas come from, which was the innovator's DNA. Then innovator's method was, well, once you have a creative idea, how do I test it um, and validate it before I invest? Right? That's the process. And so at this point, by the way, you had left Bain and you had joined, you had already sort of begun your engagement with academia. Is that right? That's right. So I left Bain. Uh, I've been there as a consultant and manager for about five years, went to UCLA for a PhD, then went to Wharton um, as a professor in strategy, 
And, um, and I've actually uh, maintained my professor position at Wharton. So I've been there for um, the last you know, 25 years. Um, but I have um, sort of moved full-time at BYU and just part-time at Wharton. So let me ask you a question about consulting in general, which I found interesting. And I've worked in, in uh, consulting firms as well. And I was always a little surprised in the consulting firms that I've worked with where I thought consulting should be all about innovation. And I actually think I am kind of creative. Like I have this image of myself as kind of creative. And, and I went right. into these consulting firms wanting to – to leverage creativity and innovation. And what I found, my experience was the opposite, which was the response was, no, 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 we've got our methodology, follow the methodology. We're not so interested right. in your being creative and innovative. We're more interested in replicating methodology across 50,000 people. And I'm curious because when you, you know, you sort of, you were a consultant at Bain and yet you also have this image of yourself as not particularly creative or innovative or wanting to stoke right. that. And I'm curious right. whether there was a disconnect at the consulting firm or whether you kind of entered it wanting to be more innovative and you didn't find it or what your experience was at Bain. Sure. So um, I think consulting firms like Bain, McKinsey, BCG, they're really good at structured problem solving. Um, I think uh, innovation is something that they're not particularly good at, to be honest, um, because we know that often innovation requires some level of expertise. And that was one of the other reasons I decided to go to academia is I actually wanted to try and become an expert at something where I could talk to you know companies or clients in an area that I had studied deeply and knew well, knew all of the nuances. And you know, you're flying a little bit by the seat of your pants sometimes in consulting. Um, so I felt like that it was really Wait, so hold on. So you're busting every every non-consultant's image of what consulting is because yeah. literally people hire consultants to bring expertise into their organization. And what you're saying is actually the, the people who are hiring them have much more expertise than the consultants do. They have more expertise in their industry, their product arenas with their technologies. And that's what's really critical for important innovation, which is around creating new products and services, right? That's the innovation that creates engines of growth for companies. Right. So uh, now this is not to say that it never happens in consulting firms. I remember at Bain, we, um, so I was there uh, from 1984 to 1989, so way back in the day. Um, and I remember we had um, built a very large healthcare practice. Um, we worked with something like 65 hospitals at the time. And the way that it started was a serendipitous visit from a manufacturing expert in the company was sent to a hospital and they were looking at cost reduction. Now this was right after the, the US, the, the government had imposed a diagnostic related groups, fixed cost reimbursement, meaning you couldn't just do cost plus anymore. You had to care about costs. And this uh, manufacturing expert, he's looking at the hospital, says, so how do you guys think about managing throughput? Like how many touches are there to the patient? How do you try and how, how do you quickly get them in and out the door? He's thinking about this like a manufacturing plant. So like right? the patient is a widget and you're trying to move them through the factory line. Exactly. And everything was designed for the opposite at the time because you wanted the highest quality of the care and you wanted the highest cost possible because cost plus means you get more profit if you have more cost. Right. So this really flipped the, the paradigm for how they thought about managing patients. And, 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 and now you have to think of a patient as a widget to get them in and get them out as quickly as possible. God, there's so, so many places to take this conversation, Jeff, because when I think about current healthcare, I think 
patients have become widgets, but costs have only, you know, I just, I just heard my health insurance was going up another 20% right. this year. So like costs have ballooned and yet patients are, are treated more like widgets than ever. That's so no, like, that's but that's but, not but, our conversation. But yeah, but I think that the point is sometimes if you come in with expertise and see a problem from a different angle in a consulting firm, there are times when then you can bring something that's new to the organization and to that conversation. And you have some, you know, pretty smart folks there. But I mean, if you look at the, you look at the engines of growth in our economy, they don't come from consulting firms. They come from people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. We, who are the people that you write about. And, right. and, and these are the people who are truly innovative, who in some ways sometimes innovate because of lack of expertise as opposed to expertise. And I'll just explain what I mean, and I'm curious to get your, your impression on this. Sure. But I was, I was listening to an interview with Sarah Blakely, who was the creator of Spanx. I don't know if you know what Spanx are. But so far, every man I've asked has no idea, and every woman I've asked knows exactly what they are. So, right. it, so Spanx is, I, I might even describe it incorrectly, but it's a, it's, it's a kind of underwear, pantyhose, sort of combination, but it, it you know, addresses the problem of uh, panty lines that uh, have existed in, uh, for women. And, and so I'm listening to this interview and I absolutely adore it. And I think, I think Sarah's brilliant and, and I really, really enjoy the conversation that I heard her in. And one of the things that I really noticed was she was a total innovator. I mean, she created uh, a, a product that was needed, but nobody else was creating. She was a woman going into a man's world in many ways and, and getting them to see something they couldn't see beforehand. And almost every move she made, she made because she didn't know. I mean, she kept saying this, like, I, I didn't know, like a, a business plan. I don't know a business plan. Um, I need a patent. Okay. How do I get a patent? I bought a bunch of books on patents. And I think, so many people, if you actually know what you're getting, there's a leadership program I run and, yeah. and it's, it's very different than most leadership programs. And one of the comments I hear people say all the time is, had I known what I was getting myself into, I never would have come. Right. And it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Right. And I think innovation, I wonder about whether innovation happens through, in some ways, lack of expertise as opposed to a surplus of expertise that might help hem us in and prevent us from going places we would go if we didn't know any better. So I think that um, there are um, folks who come up with an idea around a need and they have an insight there and then they go kind of figure it out, right? And, and they just do, right? She's just experimenting, trying but it, it succeeds because of, uh, you know, they see a need um, they, and they, they figure out a way to, 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 to fill that demand. And, and I think of that as more customer first innovation. It's the kind of innovation that actually Jeff Bezos and Amazon's very good at. You know, so they have what they call their working backwards process at Amazon, where it, you work backwards from the customer, right? And so you want to pitch a new product or service to the company, um, you pitch here's the press release that goes to the market. You know, here's the need that we're addressing and why it's important to address that need. And then you work back to figure out how to actually fulfill that need, right? With whatever the product or service uh, is gonna be. But you kind of assume you can build it, right? That, that you can overcome what we think of as the technological uncertainty. 
associated with an innovation. So there's there's demand or market uncertainty. Will people buy it? And then there's technological uncertainty. Can we build it? Right. Now, if you look at an Elon Musk, which, by the way, you arguably every business problem should be solved in that way, which is what is the outcome that we're trying to create and then back into creating that outcome? I mean, I would argue that all of leadership, all of communication, all of, you know, all work should start with what is the outcome you're trying to achieve and then back into how we achieve it as opposed to, oh, we have this capability. Where could we apply it? Yeah, no, I, no, I think that's right. At the same time, though, you, you compare Elon Musk and the and 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 the the sort of businesses he's gone into so he's uh, he's focused more on i assume there's a that, that people want electric cars that can reduce carbon emissions right right um and i think it's going to be good for the world and there are some huge technological challenges we have to overcome right in order to get there right so we have to reduce the weight of a car in order for the battery to take it 300 miles right we have to reduce the cost of the battery. We have to figure out how do we, you know, how do we reduce the cost to a point that, you know, it's actually. I see what you're saying. Right. And then you look at SpaceX. It's like, well, if we're, it's going to be cost effective, we have to have reusable rockets. So, um, you know, think about Hyperloop or Boring. They're all about overcoming major technological challenges where we sort of, you know, he assumes the customers or people will want this, right? But the success is really built around overcoming the major technological challenges. Right. And that's where you really need expertise. That's where you really need ex expertise. And that's where in, in Innovation Capital, our book, we talk about how Musk ignites what we call the virtuous cycle of innovation leadership, where he puts out a very exciting and lofty vision, right, to, um, you know, to reduce carbon emissions and bring, you know, really compelling electric cars to the market or to go to Mars. And he uses these lofty visions to recruit some of the best engineers and scientists because they want to go after something big, right? And so it's really a, an approach that he uses where he puts out a bold and lofty vision. It allows him to recruit the best. It increases the probability that he'll actually overcome these big technological challenges. And then when he does it, obviously, that creates momentum for his ventures. Now, do you have to be Elon Musk in order to set that kind of a vision believably? Or do you have to be Bezos? Or can no. you be like Peter Bregman who goes, oh, I want to do, I, I mean, if I said I'm really excited about putting someone on the moon, I have a lot less credibility and will attract right. many fewer uh, engaged minds than when Jeff says it, when Jeff Bezos sure. does it. Sure. You know, what's like the big vision for LinkedIn? And he told us, you know, actually, our vision is we want to connect all three, three billion people in the world that are in the workforce. And we want to be able to create economic opportunity for all three, three billion of those folks. And, you know, that's um, it's not going to Mars. Right. But it's still, you know, that's a pretty. It's inspiring vision. to the people who want to get behind that vision. There's yeah, an element yeah. of inspiration to it. Yeah, we're going to connect everybody. We're going to create economic opportunity. We're going to create ways that they can connect to find jobs. We're going to find, figure out ways they can get training for jobs. This is going to be an engine for economic opportunity for, you know, three billion people in the workforce in the world. And that's that's an important and lofty vision. And and that's the kind of thing that you know you start with, and then you lay out your strategic direction, sort of the, the stepping stones to move in that direction, and then you hit your your stretch goals. 
for how are we going to hit the first stretch goal to move in and it's how certainly in in consulting like we always learned and it's a solid methodology which is you know you go vision strategy tactics you sort of you know start with the lofty thing and then drive your way down and that's also what you're saying consulting i mean i know this is a little off topic but i'm interested in in this you know in like consultants not being innovators or being innovative which is that consulting is very they are no matter what experts in disciplined methodology around problem solving exactly. whereas they may not be experts at all in in the you know in the innovations themselves which consultants rely on clients to 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 really have to come up with yeah. Now, um, one one more personal question, and then I and I want to get into these components of innovation capital that I find really interesting. I'm curious why you left Bain and went into academia. So um, I decided that uh, I wanted to be more of an expert when I was going to be advising, and I, I like like you said, I, I felt like I was becoming an expert in the process of structured problem solving. Right. But I really didn't feel like, you know, I, one of my final clients at Bain was Iowa beef, you know, largest meat packer, you know, beef and cow, cow and pig slaughter in the U.S. Tell me you're a vegan. You know, I, I'm not vegan, but um, and, and we had a, the part of the project was seeing if you could maybe perhaps brand, you know, beef. This was sort of back before Angus beef and that. But but still, you know, I, I'm looking at this. I'm on the road a lot. Um, I don't feel like I'm really an expert um, the way I'd like to be. Uh, and so I decided, you know, I think it's time um, to bite the bullet and go back and get a PhD in strategy. Um, and it was really biting the bullet. Uh, my friends at Bain told me I obviously didn't understand the concept of opportunity cost. Right. Because, uh, you know, five years in a PhD program, you know, at the time, you know, cost me about one point five. $1.7 million. And it took me about 20 years to get back to my Bain salary. So um, I didn't do it for the money. Right. But I did do it because I believe that I would uh, love and enjoy my work more on a daily basis. Did it feel like a hard decision for you to make? Um, you know, it was, it was hard to leave the money. I'll, I'll have to admit. Um, but my father was a professor and I saw the kind of lifestyle he had, the flexibility to be with his children. Um, family's really important to me. And so I felt like it was the right trade-off. You know, when I think about innovators' DNA and I think about, you know, what it takes to be an innovator, emotionally it feels in some ways like it's the same decision as you leaving Bain and leaving the potential, you know, this opportunity with, you know, leaving Bain with an opportunity cost in order to pursue something that's, that's kind of engaging to you. And it feels like from an emotional perspective, you know, if your question is, here's the bit of therapy for you, but if your yeah. question is like, am I an innovator? There's a way in which emotionally that move is an innovator's move. I think that's right. And I think, you know, uh, I've always liked Jeff Bezos telling his story about leaving D.E. Shaw, where he was making a lot of money. He was the stable guy. He, was, he decides to go leave and start Amazon. You know, and his boss says, you know, I think it's a really good idea, but I think it's better idea for someone who doesn't already have a good job making a lot of money to go and do this. And, and he said, you know, I, to make that decision, I came up with a framework, uh, which he says only a nerd would use. It's called a regret minimization framework. So he says, I projected, you know, that I'm now 80 years old looking back on my life. 
and trying to minimize the number of regrets that I have. And he said, I decided, you know, I wouldn't regret leaving the Isha. Um, you know, I wouldn't regret leaving some of that money. But he said, what I thought I really might regret was never trying this thing, um, you know, Amazon, because I thought the internet was going to be a big thing. And so I think I might have always regretted that. And that's why I decided to, to, to make the decision to leave and to go you know, be a, become an entrepreneur. And as far as I know, not a decision that he's regretted. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm sure there are many entrepreneurs who have made that decision. Yeah. And, and have. Right. A hundred percent. Right. So you have to know that you're making it like you did, not not purely for the you know money you think you might be able to make, but because you're sort of so engaged with the idea that it's a vision that that captures you. That's right. And one of the things we know about innovators, uh, this is a study by Teresa Mobley at the Harvard Business School, um, was that innovators uh, tend to succeed when they're intrinsically motivated, when they're pursuing ideas they care about, right? So if you want to be innovative, try and get, you know, put yourself in a position at a company, in a career where you actually care about what you're doing. Right. I've always felt that. And I've always felt that like the, it's a much safer bet to pursue something. You don't know whether it will make you a lot of money or not, but you know, you really love than yeah. to pursue something that you don't particularly love, but you think will get you a lot of money because the downside at the end of the day is you've done a lot of work and you actually haven't made that money or the market's turned or you haven't but the downside on the other side is you've done a lot of work that you really, really love and you haven't made that much money. And that's fine because you've spent your love, life doing things that you really love. And the upside is, yeah. you know, you've made money and you've done what you love. And the, the upside in making a lot of money in something you don't love is that you've made a lot of money. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. Uh, so I've always thought that too. Okay, run us through the components of innovation capital. I really like them and I like them for two reasons. One is because they feel really uh, spot on and, and you talk about them in your book, Innovation Capital, but also because they feel very, very valid for anybody who wants to influence anyone else about anything. It's like, to me, they're like, it's not just innovation capital, it's it's persuasion capital. It's influence capital. It's like, do I want to help the make sure that there's an impact of my ideas on, on the world in whatever way. And I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but, but I'm curious to get your perspective, the, to get your sort of the components. So it, it is exactly persuasion capital in the, in the arena of innovation. And um, so what we, um, what we learned uh, from years of study, studying innovation is that creativity, coming up with the idea and even sort of testing and validating that it might work was only sort of half the story. There were a lot of folks who had good ideas but could never get the sponsorship. Resources, financial resources, the sponsorship of leaders in their company. Um, they could never get people to join their teams. And um, we realized that this was like a different skill set. And so, in fact, there's like the innovation skill set of I've got a great idea. There's the one you described earlier, which is I've got a great idea and I've got expertise around it. And then there's, I've got a great idea, I've got expertise around it, and I'm actually able to sell it in a way that gets it worked on. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, a, a comparison that we might all uh, sort of know and appreciate is the difference between Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak at Apple, right? Wozniak was really the inventor behind the Apple, uh, the first Apple computer. Um, but Jobs had the ability to recruit people to his vision to get resources to do new things. 
and to lead innovation in a way that Wozniak, you know, couldn't. I mean, he was capable in his own right, right. but couldn't uh, to the same degree. And and that's really what we were trying to capture here in this study was what's different about leaders that are able to really get people um, to provide financial resources or their own time and energy behind a, an innovation project that might not work, right? And, and that's the challenge is if you're trying something that's, that's really an innovation, it might not work. So it's risky. So you got to get people to put their money and time behind something that's risky, right? And so how do you overcome uh, you know, the, 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 the risks that, you know, people don't want to take. Um, in fact, what they want you to do, and you'll hear this from VCs all the time in Silicon Valley, go prove it out some more. Show me that it's really going to work. Then come back. Then we'll give you money, right? But sometimes, you know, you need the money and you need people to join the team to even sort of prove out the idea. So what are the, so run us, run us down with just like yeah. a sentence or two on each of, of these different components. Sure. So what we learned is that if you're a sponsor, I'm evaluating you, deciding, do I support you? Right. Here's what they look at. Number one, they look at what we think of as your innovation-specific human capital. Three components to that. One, are you a forward thinker? Do I believe you really know how to spot opportunities? Number two, are you a creative problem solver? Do I think you will be able to lead a team in solving a challenging problem? And number three, are you persuasive? I mean, do you, can you articulate uh, this vision in a way that will get others on board? So that's the human capital component of innovation capital. And, and then it moves to an evaluation, who else do you know that could be sponsors for this project, right? Do you know other innovators? Do you know business leaders? Do you know the organization leaders? Um, do you know influencers? We're more likely to want to support someone who's well-connected with innovators, business leaders, other potential sponsors. And then the third component is, what's your track record for innovation? Do you have any sort of a track record or reputation for innovation? And so I look at those. You I'm know, curious if the, if the sort of track record for innovation is, uh, it seems like it would be very tightly connected to, do I see you as someone who's forward thinking? Do I see you, you know, like it seems to like really connect to the human capital piece. You know, um, I think, uh, I think it does uh, to some extent, but you can see people early in their careers who you think have the human capital uh, dimensions, like they're forward thinkers and you think they're creative problem solvers, but they don't have a track record of innovation. They've never, they've never done it before. So now you have to rely more heavily on their human, their innovation-specific human capital than their track record for innovation. And there are other people who come in and they've maybe succeeded with two or three other innovation projects and you don't know them personally as well to know whether they're a forward thinker or whether they're you know, a creative problem solver. But their track record suggests that you know, they probably are. So then you might rely more on the track record. Right. Right. But, but what, we, what we see is then that the sponsor now is now considering these three dimensions kind of simultaneously, adding it up, and then saying, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll support you because you have what we're thinking of, this, this, what we call innovation capital, meaning enough human capital, social capital, and reputation capital in the arena of innovation, I think you can succeed. Right. And therefore, I'll support you. Right. 
Talk to us about impression amplifiers. Okay, so there are times when nobody knows who you are. Nobody uh, has any reason to believe you. Um, there's a whole field in academic research on impression management, um, where we're trying to manage the impressions of others. And we're, we've sort of identified what we feel are, are a set of tactics that we saw innovators use to influence and persuade others when um, they really didn't have much else. And so I'll, I'll give you an example. When you're, um, when you're pitching a new idea that people don't really know about, like how it will work and it's pretty novel, what we saw is people using what we called comparing, which was comparing your idea in terms of an analogy or a metaphor with another idea that they do understand. And what that does is it simplifies sort of the, the, the process of understanding the idea, but also it's, they're more likely to believe it. So I had some students who um, decided they wanted to start a company where they would go to people who had extra storage in their homes or garages, and they wanted to rent that to people who needed storage. So they said, you know what, we're gonna like be- Like an Airbnb for Airbnb too much stuff. Too. That's right. So that's what they decided. We're the Airbnb of storage. And when you hear Airbnb of storage, you're like, okay, I get it right away, right? Or the, you know, there's, um, you know, we, we talked to. Um, God, I would, I mean, this is just on a personal note. Like, I don't even want my own junk in areas of storage. The idea of having other people's junk in areas of storage is like, it seems like a nightmare. <laughs> and having so much stuff that I just have to store it away in other people's places that I would never look at, but I can't let go of. Like, right. I feel like there's a whole business in just helping those people. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's a, that's a different business model. It's a different business model. <laughs> but, right, but, but that's sort of, you know, what you're trying to do is, with a comparing amplifier is, is help people understand your idea and see why it might be successful by connecting it to a successful. Got it. And you see this in Hollywood all the time. Like, it's people describe movies. It's Jaws, but in space. Right, that's right. That's right. So, so that is an example of one where you're trying to clarify your idea. Another example would be um, what we call materializing your idea, making it visible, sort of tangible, so people can kind of get, um, you know, what you're what you're doing. Right. And um, so we know about prototypes and product representations. I, I think w one of the interesting examples we use in the book is um, is with SpaceX actually, um, and SpaceX couldn't get NASA. And sort of the you know existing infrastructure of folks to take them seriously. Uh, Beale Aerospace uh, was a private venture; it had gone bankrupt before. They hadn't been able to get the attention. And so, what Musk decided to do was sort of show the doubters that they could build a rocket, right? And that you know they were for real. So they load the seven-story Falcon rocket on a trailer, take it across the country to the Air and Space Museum. And they put it next to the Air and Space Museum with spotlights on the night of the you know, 100 year anniversary of the Wright brothers' first flight. And if there's a big gala there with people from NASA and again, the air, you know, aerospace companies. And Musk uh, you know, basically gets in, uh, up and says, you know, if you wanna see the future of aerospace, go outside and take a look at our rocket. And um, they hadn't been able to get uh, uh, NASA to come out and within uh, uh, two months after that, NASA uh, uh, scheduled to come out and take a look at what they were doing. 
in their facilities. So this is by making that idea that the, the rockets like visible, tangible, we can do this. Uh, he was able to persuade them to, to give SpaceX a serious look. You know, it's interesting because it, it's, you know, when Bezos just came out, because uh, Bezos is sort of part of this, you know, you talk about him as an innovator and he's part of this, you know, sort of competition with NASA to try to get a people on the moon, the moonshot. Yeah, his, his company is called Blue Origin. Blue Origin, yeah. And he, he did the same thing. He announced it and he had a model of it. You know, like uh, just kind of to display in some sense, it's, you know, to kind of say, hey, you know, we could do this. And here's our, in effect, life-size prototype. That's right. And, and it could be a video. I mean, if you go to look at Boring, the website, where he's wanting to bore these tunnels, you will see front and center a little video that gives the, the sort of video of how it might work. And that then people are like, oh, well, I kind of get that. Before, I wasn't quite sure what we were, you were talking about. You know, one of the things that I'm hearing you say also is as soon as you say the words image management, I have a negative reaction. And, yeah. and I imagine especially a lot of innovators might have negative reactions because there's something pristine about innovation. And when right. you start to think about like image management, it feels so superficial and thin. And yet one of the things that you're saying that's so important about this book and about the idea which is you can have all the most amazing ideas in the world, which mean nothing unless you execute them. And to execute them, you actually need people to buy into them. And to get people to buy into them, it actually matters what you look like and what your image is and how they see you. And that makes a difference. And so it's kind of a reality that like, you know, the reality of life, which is that as an innovator, it's not just about your ideas. It's about whether people are buying into them and supporting them and making them happen. And that's what creates a really great innovator. And that's what you're describing in innovation capital. Yeah, and, and the other thing though is after you start to build some innovation capital so that you're known in the marketplace, then you can actually get attention for your ideas from potential customers. Right. Right. So if, if the Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk or a Mark Zuckerberg or a Satya Nadella, any of those folks start to talk about new products, new services that are being launched, people are going to listen. Right. Yeah. 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 And so then it actually helps with, you know, awareness, trial and adoption. Right. New products. So it's it's valuable in actually selling what you come up with. Jeff. You know, I don't know, 20 years later, do you now feel like an innovator? Like you, you went into this in order to sort of stoke up your own innovation. You've written a bunch of books. You've learned about it. How do you feel about yourself? So, uh, you know, actually, when we did the Innovator's DNA, we, we created an assessment. Uh-huh. Uh, and we assessed the, the, the extent to which you engage in certain behaviors that we have found are more pronounced in innovators. And, um, and uh, we used this assessment in our research and um, and we did it with a large sample and we published our results in you know the top academic journal in entrepreneurship to show that these certain behaviors that we identify in the innovators DNA uh, which were questioning observing networking and experimenting are more pronounced in innovators and if you can engage them more frequently you'll come up with more ideas so I have had the chance to take that assessment on multiple occasions now and, uh, you know, I'm happy to say that um, I actually do engage in the, especially networking behaviors much more frequently than I did before to get new ideas. Um, and I have over time uh, been able to, uh, you know, write some books that I think are somewhat innovative. 
develop a couple of assessments around innovation at the individual level. At the organ, we have a new innovation leadership assessment uh, with innovation capital, where you can assess your own innovation capital um, and your own innovation sort of leadership. And um, so I feel like I've now actually created some new products, uh, books, assessments um, that um, are a little bit innovative and hopefully making a difference for individuals and organizations who want to be more innovative. Jeff Dyer, he wrote the book along with Nathan Furr and Curtis LaFrant, Innovation Capital, How to Compete and Win Like the World's Most Innovative Leaders. Jeff, it's been such a delight to get to know you a little bit and to have you on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your ideas. Peter, thanks so much. It's been great to visit with you and your audience. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.